Hi everybody, I'm Dr. Megan Hanlon and welcome to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do and why they are so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series, I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering and much more. So, if you're ready, sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. Today I'm joined by Dr. Annie Curtis, a leading researcher in RCSI, focusing on all things clocks and how our body clock can be regulated to control inflammatory diseases. And so throughout her career, Annie has worked in academia, but also in the pharmaceutical industry and the public sector. So it's been quite a diverse career. And among many of the accolades that I could list, Annie is a recipient of the prestigious L'Oreal UNESCO Award for Women in Science. And so for someone who works on clocks and the cycling of time, I'm absolutely delighted that you have found the time to chat to me today, Annie. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. No problem, Megan. Happy to do it. Brilliant. So I suppose we'll just start right in. So my first question really is to kind of get a sense of who Annie Curtis was when she was younger. Did you have aspirations to become a scientist or were there other careers in mind when you were in school? Oh, goodness. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I suppose I didn't really. I did enjoy science. I enjoyed chemistry and physics when I was in secondary school a lot. But I also really loved English. And um, I think I, I probably thought maybe about journalism a little as well. But I, in a funny way, now that I'm a scientist, I realize you have to have that kind of investigative attitude uh, to like science. So I think maybe that those aspirations sort of have fed kind of well into my scientific career. But no, like I wasn't the nerdy kid taking apart the radio and, you know, trying to understand how transistors work. I wasn't like that at all. Um, but I was, I suppose, interested in, in the world. And I, I really did love physics. I li- really loved sort of, you know, the laws of physics and just understanding kind of how the universe works. So I suppose that's where it came from. But I didn't even study biology when I started in uh, Trinity College. I actually started down the road of sort of chemistry and physics. And then I realized it was there was no color pictures in any of those textbooks. Mm -hmm. And I remember the day when I was thinking about switching to more of a biological, um, uh, more of a biological slant. And I remember the day I opened up a biology book in the in the library in Trinity College and I was just blown away because I just didn't realize there was this part of science as well. And that's just what really piqued my interest to become a biologist. And I, I switched things and I ended up uh, majoring, I suppose, in genetics in college. Wow. OK. Yeah. It's so funny as I go along this podcast, I find the amount of people who actually didn't start off even doing science for leave search and stuff. So it's very interesting to hear that, that you were a physics head. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so within your degree in genetics then, at what stage were you, did you decide to do a PhD or did you take a break beforehand? Yeah, so I'd have to say I am kind of, um, I am sort of a, I've done all the types of jobs out there, Megan. Um, so even when I was doing my undergrad, I didn't really think about a PhD seriously then. I was thinking more maybe about business and maybe doing an MBA. But when I did my final year project in Trinity and I was working with Pete Humphreys in the Department of Genetics, 
I really just found that I had a love of the lab, you know, just a love of doing experiments. And I was, I suppose I was encouraged as well. And this is the one thing where I think it's really important for us to really encourage students, especially the ones who, you know, we think might really do well in this career. Because my final year um, supervisor said to me sort of at the end, she said, you know, you'd make actually a good PhD candidate. And I suppose, I, you know, I hadn't, I wasn't, a, you know, I wasn't a top student or anything like that. And I just thought, you know, that this is something that I'm kind of good at. So instead of doing an MBA, I decided I would take a couple of years out though and do a bit of traveling. And I went over to Duke University in uh, North Carolina and I worked there as a research assistant doing screening doing sort of genetic screening for in, for autism, actually, over there in, in Duke. And I really enjoyed that. And I was kind of thinking then, yeah, I, prob- I probably should do a PhD. Then I actually worked as a bartender for a year in North Carolina as well, until my mother basically dragged me home. She said, you know, enough of that now. You need to do something serious. So I came back to Ireland. God, I'm not even going to say what year that was. And I was very fortunate to be offered a job again as a research assistant because I didn't really know, I didn't really know where I wanted to do a PhD, but kind of knew at that point I did. And I worked down in University College Cork, down with Fergus Shanahan, again doing sort of genetic type screening. And it was there, you know, and this is the funny thing, you know, it's all about the people you meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a postdoc at the time, Trisha Barry who now has, she's still down there as, um, as an academic. She had done her PhD and postdoc with a very famous scientist called Garrett Fitzgerald, who's over at University of Pennsylvania. And she said to me, she said, I'm, I'm going to put you in contact with Garrett. You should talk to Garrett. And literally, I, like that, met Garrett one day and was signed up to do a PhD with him the next, over in Philadelphia. Didn't even really know where Philadelphia was. And yeah, ended up going over there and spending five years in Garrett's lab, very happy years doing my PhD. That's what gave me the introduction to clocks. That's where I started working on clocks in the cardiovascular system. And I was just hooked. You know, I just, I have to say, um, the clock biology, it's just an amazing, amazing field to work in. And uh, yeah, very fortunate for that opportunity. But it's all, you know, there's a lot of luck in this as well. And there's a lot of just meeting the right people at the right time. But, you know, as I always say, like if you're if you're on the right track, the university will work with you to make it happen. Yeah. And I mean, it is about luck, but it's also you make your own luck, you know, as well. And I think in academia, there is kind of a fortuitous meeting of people. But you know, you wouldn't have gotten to that position if you weren't, if you weren't kind of, they, they didn't see something in you. Um, yeah, no, it's funny. Garrett would always say, look favours the prepared mind. <laughs> and I suppose that's what it is. You know, if you're kind of looking out for opportunities or you've got, if you've got that fire in your belly, mm. yeah, things seem to, seem to go your way. I know it's probably a female thing to say, to say everything is more about luck, but uh, I do think you have to appreciate though, it is, you know, it, it is a lot about the people that you meet along the way. Yeah, no, exactly. And yeah, I actually really just want to get straight into the clocks as well, because I've... Been, Why not? Why yeah, not? <laughs> I, I've been fascinated with, with it, you know, and throughout my PhD, I've, I've watched you speak not only in a setting in Trinity or in a lecture, but also in kind of more relaxed settings. Could you just give us maybe a bit of a background or what, what does circadian rhythm mean or what, what should we know about the body clock? 
Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating area. So we have to have some sort of timing system in our body. And the reason we have to have that is that we live on a planet that spins on its axis. And because we uh, circle the sun, there is times of day very predictable. You know, the sun always rises in the morning and always sets in the evening. And because of that, pretty much every organism on the planet has some sort of timing system. So it was obviously evolutionarily very important for organisms to be able to tell the time of day because once those systems happened in organisms, they were kept on. And we can see how, you know, we live in a very rhythmic world. You know, we have certain activities that only happen during the life cycle. So eating for most of us, exercising, thinking, working, you know, I could go on. Um, and then in the evening time, then we do other sets of activities. You know, we prepare ourselves for sleep and then, you know, sleep takes up such an amazing and significant proportion of our day. So, so our cells do different things depending on the time of day. So, for example, like even in our immune system, what we know is our immune system is very much on the lookout for foreign pathogens, like stranger or danger signals, as we call them, during the day. So the, our body clock times for that to happen. And then in the nighttime when we sleep, it's really quite intriguing. You know, our immune system does not sleep when we sleep. Our immune system starts creating memories. Mm. So it starts creating memories of the things it saw that day, putting it into categories of, you know, whether we need to respond to that again or, you know, that's not harmful. So we don't need to respond to that if we see that again. So interestingly, and, you know, very appropriate for, for these days, vaccines work more effectively if we've had sufficient sleep. So, so I didn't become, because I started off doing cardiovascular kind of clock research, that area is all about blood pressure and uh, cardiovascular disease. And what's really interesting, and Megan, you'll be really interested in this from your arthritis work, is that certain conditions, their symptoms peak at a certain time of day. You're much more likely to get a heart attack first thing in the morning. You're much more likely to get a heart attack first thing on a Monday morning, you know, and we are much more susceptible to getting heart attacks when the clocks go forward in springtime because, you know, we're disrupting our clocks. So, you know, I was just, I'm, and I still am, I'm absolutely in love with this field because I think it explains a lot of like who we are. And, you know, how our physiology uh, functions across the 24-hour day. Like, in a way, we could almost think of ourselves as a different species in the morning versus the evening time. Because we have just very different cassettes of genes working in the morning time than we do in the evening time. And that just fascinated me. But as well as that, it's, it's sort of the modern lifestyle. That's what really gets my juices flowing these days is this thing that we now know is that our current modern lifestyle is really causing a lot of clock disruption. Because, you know, if you think about how our forefathers lived without electricity, all their behaviors and activities were very much aligned with the light-dark cycle. Because they had to be. You know, they could only do things when the sun was up. Um, and then, you know, they were rest. all they could do was rest when the sun went down. But in today's society and with technology and with devices, you know, it's, it's interesting to know that the CEO of Netflix said that his main competitor 
was sleep. Because, you know, all of these things, you know, we're, we're not fine when we're asleep. We're, <laughs> we're not making money for companies when we're asleep. So a lot of these uh, devices and technologies and apps and all of that, their main priority is really to keep you awake. And yeah. that's causing massive um, disruption of our body clocks. Yeah. And I think I, I've seen you speak before about having this artificial light, you know, before bed or watching Netflix before bed and how that can completely disrupt your body clock. Is, is that- yeah. So, so a lot of these, yeah, a lot of these devices admit blue light. And in the, in, if you think about the light spectrum, if you remember your physics days, Megan, if you did physics and, you know, how light is broken up into the constituent parts, depending on its wavelength. So blue light is a very stimulating light. And we are exposing ourselves to a lot of this blue light in the middle of the night. And like our forefathers never had that because, they, you know, they, they weren't sitting in front of iPads. Um, and that's causing a lot of body clock disruption. But even, you know, we're not, we're, we're sort of divorced now from our external environment. We don't depend on it anymore because of, you know, electricity and, and technology. And this very much 24-7 society that we're in, which I think it's changing, but I think, they're, I think we're harboring a lot of clock disruption because of that. And I, it's one of the factors that's causing and leading to, you know, a lot of these inflammatory diseases that we've seen, you know, really increase in incidence over the last number of decades. And that's what I'm really interested in, is this connection between our body clock and its disruption and how that's leading to different chronic inflammatory diseases, which are all, you know, very much uh, driven by dysregulation of our immune system. And, and that's where the, the, immune, the immune stuff comes in, Megan. That's why I'm really interested in, uh, in immunology. So when you speak about the body clock, you also um, are right in saying that every cell in the body has its own body clock or its own internal clock and you're specifically interested in immune cells and how they're regulated by the body clock or how the body clock regulates them? Yeah, so it's it's really fascinating, Megan. Like up until maybe 20 years ago, we just thought our, we had a kind of a main clock in our brain mm. and that was dry, that was sending out your hormonal signals or your, your nervous signals, you know, stimulating the nerves. And that was causing kind of timing. But then about yeah, 20 years ago, they discovered actually pretty much all cells in the body. So your heart cells, your immune cells, you know, cells in your digestive system, that they actually all have the capacity to tell time. And that's actually in a way one of the problems because What's happening now in modern day society is our clocks in our peripheral tissues, like our heart and our and and um, in our joints, let's say, or in our muscles, they can be sort of misaligned to the main clock that's in our brain, and we call that's that's really what's causing this body clock disruption, because our brain clock is very sensitive to light. You see. Mm. Whereas the clocks in the rest of our body are not as sensitive, you see. So when when you're looking at the screen in the middle of the night, you're pro- you're changing your brain clock, but your your other clocks in your rest of your body aren't aren't receiving those signals. So actually, you're just kind of getting mistiming. If you think about in a room with a load of clocks and all of them at different times, that's not good for the body, and that's sort of really what's what's happening. So. 
yeah, the fact that our immune cells have this clock is just so intriguing because what does that mean for our immune system, you know, throughout the 24 hour day? And we do see that, like that's one of the reasons why when you wake, I don't know if you suffer from this, Megan, but you know, for me, when I wake up in the morning and if I've got a cold, like I feel dreadful. Mm. But then by the time I kind of go through the day, I feel a bit better. And by the nighttime, I'm not so bad. And then I wake up the next morning again and I'm aches and pains and groaning and all of that. So that, that's actually our immune clock functioning. And within your research, you mainly focus on innate immunity. So like the first line of defense, I'm assuming innate or adaptive immune cells also have body clocks. But why do you focus on the innate ones, macrophages, DCs? Yeah, so I suppose I got interested in the innate immune system because I did a PhD with Luke O'Neill and, um, or sorry, a postdoc with Luke O'Neill. And, you know, he is the king of innate immunology. And it was, it was when I started in his lab, I hadn't any training in immunology up until then. So when I started in his lab and learned a bit about the innate immune system, it just made sense to me that that would be a good place to start because that's the first responder. You know, and macrophages are in pretty much every tissue, every organ in your body. Mm. And, you know, they last for a long time. So that's what you do. That's what does make sense from a clock perspective is, you know, if your cell type is only around for a couple of hours a day, you know, and then it's then it's gone. Mm-hmm. That's that's difficult to study from a clock perspective. You need cells that last that are in the body for a long time working away because then you can really understand whether uh, the clock is important. And I was really interested in the innate immune system, you know, the first responder. Just because that is, you know, macrophages are really the key cell that produce um, pro-inflammatory cytokines. You know, so they're really, they're, they're one of the key cells in orchestrating this inflammatory response mm-hmm. um, and this immediate inflammatory response. And because so many conditions, so many inflammatory conditions seem to be linked with clock disruption, that's what I thought, you know, I said, I bet you there's something here in this. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, luckily there is. I'm not disputing <laughs> the importance of macrophages at all. Um, anyone who knows, <laughs> know they're my favorite cell type. So I'm <laughs> only delighted that you're working on I them. know that. So I suppose just for people who maybe might not have a sense of how we work on these, you know, on these processes, could you maybe give me a bit of insight into the types of experiments and yeah. maybe the day-to-day, you know, running of a clock lab, because I'm assuming there's quite, you know, there's these are quite long experiments and dependent on light and darkness. Um, so maybe just give us a bit of an insight into that. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think anyone who decides to go into circadian biology uh, needs to have a bit of a tough skin, Megan, because it's not the easiest thing to, to model. Yes, you can be in at like very weird hours of the day and night trying to take off, you know, samples. One of the things, fortunately, though, one of the things is we can model this in a dish. So we're able to stimulate the cells for a certain amount of time and then take off that stimulus. And then the cells just miraculously, and thank God that this works, they, they, they're all sort of in rhythm, you know, and we can take then after that stimulus, we can take cells 12 hours later, 24 hours later, 36 hours later, 48 hours later, and we can look at clock function. 
And that's that's something that we would do a lot in the lab is um, is to do to do it that way, because we're really we're really interested in like within the macrophage, you know, within that really key immune cell, you know, what's happening at, say, dawn Mm. versus what's happening at dusk. You know, what are the pathways that are activated? Is it more is it more likely to sense bacteria or virus? at dawn or is it more likely to sense bacteria or virus at dusk? Is it more likely to have kind of an uncontrolled inflammatory response at dawn or, or at dusk? So, so that's, that's one aspect that we do. We also then genetically knock out the clock. So we're lucky as well in that sense because there is one key clock component. And if you knock out that protein, well, you basically have a clockless cell, right? And we would do a lot of investigations on that. And then, yeah, we would set up like a lot of studies where we're taking samples at different times of the day as well and analyzing, you know, the cells and and the reactions in that. So it's a really, there's a really, there's many ways to go about this. Mm. And then, sorry, one last thing is sometimes we model shift work. So we're trying to look at like the impact of shift work as well. And we kind of mess up the lights in the room and try to and and try to model what happens when individuals, you know, would work night shift work. And that's really important and interesting to us. First of all, a lot of people work shift work. So up to 20 percent of the population um, can work shift work. And those individuals are much more susceptible to um, chronic inflammatory diseases, the diseases which we think are very much related to the clock, like arthritis, inflammatory arthritis, cardiovascular disease, asthma, those those sort of things. So, so they're, they're the three. They're sort of the three kind of pillars of of how we do it. And you know, when you're saying that you know mess with the lights and you're trying to mimic shift work, this is in a mouse model. You're not putting humans. This would be in. <laughs> Not yet, Megan, not yet. But, you know, if we could, we would, I can tell you. The, the, the issue we're trying to do that is, you know, as you know, Megan, you do a lot of human work. You know, people are a lot more diverse than mice. Mm. And sometimes it's, it can be a little bit easier to find the thing in mice and then to look for it in humans than, than the other way around. But of course, you know, mice are not humans. And it is, it's really important that we look at a lot of these effects in humans to see if they're relevant all right. Yeah. And so with studying the disruption of clocks, particularly in how that's linked to inflammatory disorders or other disorders, is there a possibility that we could, if we could like resynchronize our clocks or kind of get them back to a normal rhythm, that that could rescue in some way um, these chronic inflammatory disorders? I think it could, you know, and I think there's um, a lot of benefit in getting a good night's sleep (laughs) and having a very regular, having a very regular schedule. You know, that's the one thing that we do not have is we don't have regular schedules anymore. And there was a really interesting study just came out a couple of months ago showing that individuals who slept and woke at the same time of day, you know, be it a Monday when you're going to work or be it a Saturday or Sunday, that those individuals had less risk of cardiovascular disease than other individuals who were getting the same number of hours of sleep, but were, say, working on one schedule Monday to Friday and then having a different schedule on Saturday and Sunday. So there is a huge benefit in just regularity, Mm -hmm. for sure. And, you know, getting enough outdoor light, actually, as well. 
because that's a key thing for us as our, as humans in our current situation. We spend far too much time indoors. And the light has, you know, lots of different intensities. And even though we think we're in brightly lit rooms and houses, we're not. It does not compare to the outside light. And we need that sort of high um, intensity light, especially during the daytime, because that really sets our clocks up for the day. So there's, there, there's actually very simple things that we can do to really improve our body clock function. You know, even eating. So we know as well that if we could reduce the number of hours that we ate to more like 10 hours or 12 hours, at the moment, most of us eat for about 15 or 16. We're, we're eating when we wake up in the morning and we're still nibbling by the time we go to bed. And that's not great for our clocks either. So, you know, there's three and exercise as well. So exercise, especially in the morning, is really good, actually, to uh, to set our clocks. So there's a lot of like non-expensive things that we can do (laughs) to help our circadian rhythms and to actually help our health. And I sort of think they're not really that well talked about, you know, especially in just the general media. And I think it's changing. But and I think the more we learn about how important our clocks are, the more important these sort of, you know, small interventions can be to to promote health and well-being. And yeah, I think that's quite pertinent for the times we're living in at the minute, especially with lockdown, because I know I moved back home from Dublin. I'm in West Meath and I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of an owl. I've heard you speak before about larks and owls. And, you know, if you're a lark, you're up very early in the morning. <laughs> and if you're an owl, you're not. And anyone in the lab will know that I'm usually always the last one in. But, you know, you stick to my own body clock, which I was delighted to Absolutely. hear. Absolutely. And that's what's critical. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, remember, I think I was in my first year, my PhD, and I heard you speak about that. And I was like, well, Ursula, look, I'm an owl. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, but <laughs> I think with lockdown, it's been quite hard because... I'm getting up, but I'm going to an office in my room. So I'm probably getting up, yep. after, you know, as in, and, and to kind of stick to that, that having an alarm on. Now I work, I live at home and I live on a farm. So there's always people up milking at a specific time every day. So they're very, <laughs> um, so I kind of wake up when they're waking up, but you know, it, it's been in lockdown, you, you're not sticking to a normal schedule. So that may have an impact as well. Oh, absolutely. Like I think lock, I think our, I think from, for most of us, our body clocks have really taken a hit mm. in this lockdown. And, you know, there's reasons for that. And many, as you just said, we our normal schedules have been just shot. And, you know, for many of us, we would have sort of ta- our body clocks would have been timed by very regular activities that we would have done, say, every morning and evening such as go out in the daylight and, you know, get to work. Um, Very regulated times when we would have eaten as well. You know, whereas now like the fridge and the kitchen is is literally an arm's length away. So, and as well as that people, even social interaction Mm. actually stimulates our body clock. And, you know, that's, I think that's one of the biggest losses of the lockdown is, um, the lot of, you know, just social interaction. Like I read a great article that talked about, you know, that the biochemistry of touch, that in reality, you know, we are a, spe- we are a social species. And the fact that we're not interacting or even, you know, 
shaking people's hands or, you know, putting a hand on somebody to comfort them. All of those things can change our physiology and they can actually, they can actually train our clocks. And we're missing all of that as well. So I think, I think lockdown, which I think has been very hard for, for lots of people in lots of ways. But one of the reasons is that it's really affecting our body clocks. And, and I think one of the offshoots of that is actually issues with uh, mental health because there's a huge connection between our body clocks and mental health as well. So if our, if our body clocks are disrupted, one of the things that we also see is issues with depression and mental health. And I think we're, I think we're already sort of seeing that. I think some of us are even, you know, even feeling that, mm-hmm. um, that we don't have that kind of regular stimulation every day. Yeah, definitely. And kind of mood changes as well. Uh, yeah, I completely yeah. agree. I suppose I'm also interested in cellular metabolism and I think you are as well. So I just wanted to know what is the link then with body clock and this immunity and then metabolism on top of that? There's kind of a threefold thing going on there. There is. And like one of the things that got me sort of interested in this was when I was in Luke's lab and he was working on metabolism in immunity mm. you know I started thinking about the body clock and of course we we eat at one time of the day <laughs> and we fast at another time when we're asleep and that to me was kind of the driving force into looking at metabolism and and circadian rhythms because I was thinking you know my goodness yeah immune cells are being fed at one specific time of day and they're not, you know, there, there wouldn't be as many nutrients going around or metabolism would change because we know metabolism changes mm. when we sleep. So, you know, when, when we're awake, we are burning the sugars, right? Uh, burning the glucose that we take in. But when we're asleep, what happens is we start burning the fats which we've stored. And that's really what got me interested in um, metabolism, this connection then with our circadian rhythms and how that might affect immune function. And certainly from what we've seen in the lab is, yes, in these immune cells, the metabolism is changing quite distinctly depending on time of day. So then the next question is, well, how does that change the function of these immune cells? And this is something that we are really interested in. And I, and I think this is probably one of the really big links into what's happening with the, when, when, our, when we look at our 24-7 lifestyles, that we are really altering metabolism there in a time of day way. And that's really affecting then um, the metabolism and the circadian rhythms in our immune cells. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and I think as well, I was particularly interested to talk to you because, you know, the macrophage studies and metabolism are, you know, a big passion of mine as well. And then to bring in the clocks, which I think anyone, I suppose, who's listening to this podcast will probably be a big fan of clocks after this. I, I think it's fascinating anyways. Um, but I suppose as well <laughs> as the science, I'm interested in kind of briefly touching on, you know, the people behind the lab coats and career progression. So I'm really interested in, you know, you left academia or you, you had a brief period in pharmaceutical industry and the public sector. So how, what was that like and, and how or why did you return to academia um, or I suppose academic <laughs> research? I, I'm not going to say, are you mad? Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, a lot of people have said, are you, are you mad? And certainly it was the best decision I ever made. So I, I was really, I really did 
want to go into industry for a little while. And when we were in the States, when we were in Philadelphia and I finished my PhD and did a, did a very short postdoc, I sort of knew I had an opportunity there to, to work to work in industry. And, you know, over in the States, there's a lot more sort of basic research going on in industry, in pharmaceutical industry than there would be in Ireland. So I an opportunity came my way and I grabbed it with both hands and I really enjoyed it and I learned a huge amount. I really learned how difficult it is to get medicines to market, actually. Um, and, you know, decisions are made sometimes not based on the science, a lot of times based on investors, a lot of times, you know, based on who the CEO is in a pharmaceutical company. And that just, it just taught me a lot and gave me just a great perspective about, you know, what happens to the research. You know, once you make the discovery, how can that be translated for, for clinical benefit? And then when we came back to Ireland, um, you know, I was waiting for Luke to offer me a job and he didn't offer it to me when I came back in 2008. I had to wait until 2010, or 2010, 2011. So I spent a couple of years in um, Science Foundation Ireland working as a program manager. And in a way that was strategic in a sense because I wanted to get a sense of what the funding landscape was like in Ireland because we've been out of Ireland for um, eight years at that point and I wanted to get to know who was who in Ireland in terms of um, academic researchers so what better way to do it than to be reading their grants Um, and again that those years were really informative I, I, I don't know if I learned how to write a grant very well but I certainly I certainly learned a bit about peer review and you know, how grants are reviewed. And I, I think the biggest thing that I took from it is, you know, sometimes the bounce of the ball just doesn't go your way, you know, in terms of submitting a grant. It just depends on the reviewers that it lands in and really not to take it too personally and just to try again. So I think that was a really big lesson for me is just to just to persevere, you know. Mm. One bad review doesn't mean it's a bad grant, you know. It just might need to be finessed or something. And then, yes, then I, I did want to make the return to research and I was fortunate enough to know that Luke had gotten um, an ERC, which are what, one of the really big European grants. He had gotten an ERC advance grant, and I knew that was five years of funding. And I knew we ca- I kind of needed about f- a five-year uh, contract, which is difficult enough to get in academics, you know, certainly as a postdoc. Mm. But I knew we wanted to start a family and I knew that we that I probably needed that amount of time. So um, luckily, I was able to convince Luke to uh, allow me to to go into his lab. And I think, you know, I have to give a huge amount of appreciation to Luke for doing that because I've been out of research for a number of years. You know, he could have said, you're you're a bit too rusty and stale there, Annie. But he, he gave me the opportunity and he actually gave me the opportunity to work on circadian rhythms. Yeah. Even though that wasn't in his grant, he gave me the opportunity to develop my own area. And that has made all the difference. And now you've, you know, progressed on and now you're head of a lab or a PI of a lab. How do you find that transition from being in the lab and, you know, so hands on to then being more of a managerial role, but, you know, hands off? Or are you are you in the lab? I yeah, I would love to be more in the lab. I actually love doing experiments. Anyone who knows me and the guys in the lab know that I actually love being in the lab. 
And um, there's been times when I've been able to get it back into the lab for very brief periods of time. It's a it's a funny transition, Megan. I'll have to say, you know, first of all, a lot there's a lot more on your shoulders, all right, and um, because you have to try to bring in money. And I would consider, you know, supervising students and postdocs a you know a, a big responsibility, and um, because you know you are shaping their lives and their careers to some extent as well. So I would I don't take those things lightly at all. But it's it is really good. It's really, really great. But sometimes it's a bit lonely because, you know, when you're in the lab, you've got that kind of camaraderie with everyone else in the lab, you know, and you're all doing experiments together and the experiments are working or they're not working. They're working for some people. And there's great crack in the lab. Like I really enjoyed being in the lab, certainly in Luke's lab, which was just immense, you know, just immense fun. And you kind of miss that, you know, sometimes I don't, I don't even think that I'm the, the head of the lab. You know, in my head, I would like to be just in the lab <laughs> doing the experiments. But, you know, it's, it is a great job. It is, it is so diverse, you know, like this, you know, I could be reviewing a grant in the morning. I could be talking to somebody like yourself in the afternoon. And, you know, I certainly, the discoveries are amazing when things work out, there's nothing better. It's like a drug nearly. Yeah. It's so good when things work out or, you know, when you have an insight and you think, I just think this is right. Most times it's wrong, as we know, but there's just a real poetry or beauty. It's almost like, you know, sometimes like meditating, you know, when, when things are going right, there's just a real flow and, and that's, that's really great. And I think it's, there's not too many jobs that are like that. I know I've worked most of them because um, I've worked a lot of jobs outside academics. And, and in reality, you know, once, once you've had that perspective, you do realize that there is something really magical, actually, at times about being in academics. But, you know, it can be hard as well. But you have to really savor the good stuff and you have to really and celebrate the good yes, stuff we, as well. You know, when somebody gets a grant, yeah, or an award, you have to you have to tear you have to tear it out of it because you know there are there are many dark days as well, and uh, you need to have kind of the have built up a bit of fortitude or sustenance to get over those hard days. Yeah, no, no, definitely. That's a, a mantra that we take in the fear and lab as well. But Annie, I've been, you know, it's been brilliant <laughs> chatting to you. Um, I've learned loads and I'm, yeah, again, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to me today. And Megan, thanks for doing this. I think it's a really important to do these types of um, outreach events and, and outreach broadcasts. So well done you for taking the initiative. <laughs> thanks. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.